Welcome to Studying the Song, a podcast to help musical theater actors figure out what to sing and how to sing it so that you shine in your audition, one-woman show, or leading role. My friends, talent and passion are only the beginning. I believe there is freedom in preparation. I believe that when you put in the work, practice the skills, and do the research, something amazing happens. You become so prepared in your craft that you become unstoppable. In this podcast, I want to give you the tools and skills to create a powerful audition book that showcases your artistry and actually gets you work. I want you to feel totally at home reading the musical score of a show, and I want to help you define your unique artistic voice. Consider me your own personal vocal coach in your earbuds, cheering you on and bringing you the reality checks you need along the way. I'm Corey Yamaoka, and I'm so excited to be walking this journey with you. Let's dive in. Hello, and welcome back to Studying the Song, the podcast that helps musical theater singers figure out what to sing and how to sing it so they can shine in the audition room. I'm your host, Corey Yamaoka. I'm super excited about today's episode. I'm going to be talking to you about Howard Ashman. Why? Because I just watched a documentary about him on Disney Plus. It's called Howard. And what I came to learn is that he has written some of my favorite shows. Like I was a fan of all these shows and somehow I just never put it together that this was the guy that wrote the lyrics for all of them. So here are some of those shows. Smile, which is not a huge Broadway hit, but has some great music in it. Little Shop of Horrors, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin, which he did three of the songs in that. So we're going to dive into actual lyrics from some of these uh, shows. And I want to tell you like, or I just want to talk about it because it makes me happy. Like what makes his lyrics so special? What is so memorable about his songs? And then also just a little bit about who he was as an artist, because I feel like his name, we don't talk about him as much as we should. We focus on people like Stephen Sondheim, who obviously is a tremendous composer and lyricist. Um, these days it's Lin-Manuel Miranda. If we go way back, we, you know, give props to like Cole Porter and, um, Ira Gershwin for their ability to rhyme and use language. But Howard Ashman, I tell you what, he is just totally underrated. So let's get into a little bit. He comes to musical theater, not necessarily as a lyricist. He actually started out as a playwright and a director. And what I find so fascinating about that is that as a lyricist, he's actually in tune with what the whole show is doing. And he, you'll see in the, in the songs that we're going to talk about today, that he will move the plot forward with his lyrics. He will help set the scene with his lyrics. He will um, give you more information about the character, which I know many musical theater lyricists, like that's the assignment. Those are the check marks, what you need to do. But the way he does it is so elegant and so fun at the same time. I also think it's interesting that he's coming at it from being a playwright because he is the creative engine for a lot of these shows. With Smile and Little Shop of Horrors, he was actually the one that said, this is my next project and began to work on it. He didn't get pulled into those from somebody else's project. When he started working with Disney, that's a different story. So he wrote the shows that I just mentioned. He um, went to university in Indiana and then moved to New York. And like I said, was writing plays first. And he had some partners that he was writing with. And he opened, because it's like difficult to get your plays produced, especially when you're unknown, they started their own workshop of players art. And it's called the WPA. That is not to be confused with the Depression Era um, Works Progress Administration and their federal theater project, most famously, that produced Cradle Will Rock. That's a different WPA. So he created this own workshop with his partner and ended up producing his plays. Started to, um, he came into a show, I'm not sure what, what show it was. It's not one of the ones I just mentioned, um, as also doing lyrics in addition to writing the book. And he fell in love with writing the lyrics. He said, this is where I, I feel like the most alive and I'm having the most fun. So that's kind of cool. Then he meets Alan Menken, 
who we know as um, composer Alan Menken of many of the shows I just mentioned, at a BMI workshop. A BMI is like ASCAP. It's a, um, a publisher's uh, association for composers. And they were also in class with, I just love when these things happen, you know, just in class with Maury Yeston, who wrote Nine and The Other Phantom, not the Andrew Lloyd Webber Phantom. And another classmate, Ed Kleben, who wrote the lyricist to A Chorus Line. Okay. Um, he wrote the lyricist, wrote the lyrics to A Chorus Line. So he's sort of coming up at this time with all of these fellow artists, meets Alan Menken and finds his, um, really his partner that he's going to do almost all of his work with, which is exciting. I always feel like when those partnerships happen, it's like magical that they just have the same um, their energy connects in such a way. And with Ashman really being like the motor and the engine and Alan being able to support his, um, ideas with the lyrics and with these beautiful melodies, like I'm not even going to dive into the Alan Menken melodies, but y'all there's, they're so memorable. They're so beautiful. And they're like that quintessential, what I think quintessential Disney sound for things like little mermaid and beauty and the beast. So, um, Let's get into some of his early works. Smile. This is a show um, that played off-Broadway, and it is about um, a beauty pageant in California. All these girls are competing to be Miss California, I think. Um, And it's not, you know, it's a little bit of a send-up of that, and it it does criticize some of the the sexism and stuff that, that exists in that. So don't think it's just like, oh, it's about a beauty pageant. It's not relevant anymore. It is relevant. And the music is fantastic. Um, That was adapted from a film that had already had some success. Okay. The other show that he did right after Smile was Little Shop of Horrors, also off Broadway, also adapted from a film. But this film was like a cult classic. Nobody, everybody thought it was terrible. The director created the film in like two days. They didn't think anything was going to come up, come of it. Um, and it, it, it kind of became this thing that, that Howard Ashman thought, Oh, I can musicalize that, which is so weird to musicalize like this man eating plant. Right. So both of these shows, I bring them up together because both of them started off Broadway and they actually moved smile to Broadway And that show did terribly when it was transferred into a large space. And I think that's interesting because he was really writing for these quirky characters. And there's something about being in that intimate space and, and being that close to the actors. You're like part of it has a different energy than once you get up onto the Broadway stage and it's like, show me all the glamour and what you got, right? Like show me all the razzle dazzle of theater. It's a different kind of show that succeeds at that scale. So when it came to Little Shop and it was so successful off-Broadway, the producers were David Geffen and Cameron McIntosh. Um, Cameron McIntosh produced, um, I believe he produced Phantom of the Opera and many of the Andrew Lloyd Webber shows. He decided that he did not want to take it to Broadway, even though he had offers to do that. And this show became, I think, like the third longest running off-Broadway show. It ran for five years. Huge success. Not eligible for a Tony, though, because it wasn't actually on Broadway. But um, Little Shop is my favorite show of all time. And I always think that that's an odd choice. Or I, I've struggled to say that because it seems like not very consequential. It's not very serious. It's like this fun 50s, 60s doo-wop kind of stuff, right? But... I was always attracted to the lyrics of this show. And I'm realizing I didn't actually pick any little shop examples. For, oh, no, I did. I did. We're going to talk about somewhere that's green. Um, the rhymes and with keeping with this doo-wop flavor, I just was like blown away when I heard the little shop soundtrack. And it's one that I never get tired of listening to. And one of my favorite shows of all time, if not the favorite. And then I come to find out that it's Howard Ashman and Alan Macon who also did The Little Mermaid. And I'm like trying to reconcile those two things next to each other, but we'll get there. So Little Shop, huge success, ran for five years. And then he starts to work. He gets pulled in on like one one movie, I think, for Disney. I think it was Oliver and Company. Um, 
And, and then they start talking to him about this project that they're doing for the little mermaid. And what ends up happening is he comes over and he works on these series of Disney shows. And there's something that happens at Disney called, you know, they refer to it as the Disney Renaissance. And it was really from like 1989 to 99, driven in part by these shows that Howard Ashman wrote. And there's a reason for that. I'm going to get to that in a second. So they had historically been very popular when Walt Disney was head of the studio from like 1930 to 1960-ish. And then they sort of struggled to find their footing for a while and they were doing more um, live action and that kind of a thing. And then in 89, something happened where they started writing their shows differently and getting different people involved in it. And they just started churning out hit after hit and they were critically acclaimed as well. So critics and, you know, the populace like them. So the shows that happened during this little Renaissance period for them were The Little Mermaid, Rescuers Down Under, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King, Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame or Notre Dame, Hercules, Mulan, and Tarzan. And I always thought those shows were fantastic, but I also grew up during that time period and those were the shows of when I was a child. So I just thought I liked Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin because like I was a kid and you just love whatever the shows are at that time. And then for the last couple shows, I was getting into high school. And so I wasn't like super into Hunchback and Hercules, but I knew that they were also really great movies. But now I'm coming to realize that this was actually a super special time in the Disney repertoire. And now I know in large part to Howard Ashman. So let's keep going on. Why, what did Ashman bring to the table that was so helpful and that made this renaissance happen? Okay. So he believed that animation was like a really perfect match for musical theater. Not so much live action. He thought that movie musicals seemed like unbelievable that somebody would break into song and dance. But with animation, it felt more real because it was already fantastical. You already knew it was a cartoon. It wasn't like real world, right? And you could do... All, whatever your imagination came up with for the imagery, for the for the animation in conjunction with the musical theater um, singing and dancing. So he really believed that it was a wonderful avenue for him to be bringing, you know, musical theater, lyric writing and all of that. And with Alan Menken's um, music uh, compositions too. He also was a strong proponent of using actors that had a theater background and um, like in Little Mermaid, the gal who played Ariel was Jodie Benson. If you don't know that name, hopefully you will remember her after today's episode. So she's the one that sang Part of Your World, the song that like every girl that watched Disney movies, Disney princess movies, like grows up singing. And a lot of people want to sing that song in their book, et cetera, et cetera. Beautiful voice. Well, he had actually worked with Jody already on Smile. She was one of the lead characters in that show. And when that show flopped, I mean, she recalls in this documentary that she think maybe Howard wanted to like make it up to her and bring her on board for Little Mermaid. Anywho, so she was in The Little Mermaid singing with a, her gorgeous, powerful, sensitive, emotional voice. Um, and then Beauty and the Beast featured Jerry Orbach, um, who was in, you know, 42nd Street and um, uh, what's the weird one with the puppet? It's not coming to my mind right now. It's a single word. Okay, I'm just popping in to say that the name of that show is Carnival. And he was also in Promises, Promises. Um, and then he was in the original production of Chicago and 42nd Street. Okay. Um, Jerry Arbach, who you may also know from Law and Order, he played um, the candlestick. And then Angela Lansbury played Mrs. Potts. And so these are musical theater professionals and legends by that point coming into this show to this music um, musical animation and again just bringing that really strong essence of like this is musical theater it just happens to be animated okay so using actors that have a strong theater background and then the other thing that he brought with him that helped this renaissance happen I think is the dramatic 
conventions of musical theater. And here's what I mean. When he came and wrote um, Part of Your World for The Little Mermaid, that song is the, you know, she's, it's a ballad. She's by herself. She's singing about her longing, et cetera, et cetera. In theater, we know that as the I want song of the main character, which is super important because it basically lays out this girl wants this and the entire rest of the movie is going to be built around her trying to get it, right? And that's how musicals are built. Well, the team at Disney thought that it didn't move enough and that kids were going to get bored and they actually wanted to cut out part of your world. Could you imagine the movie without that song? I can't imagine it. And he basically said like over my dead body, I'm not we're not cutting that song. That is the heart of the entire story. He knew what an I want song was, and they didn't understand that. Even with all of the musicals that they have written, and I actually want to go back now and look at those earlier shows and really think like, did these other musicals not have I want songs for their main characters? Is that what this Disney Renaissance was about? It was like now they were getting all of the dramatic undergirding of how you put a musical together? Is that what made the difference? I think maybe it is. Um, that will take more research and, and study. But for them to say that they didn't understand that that was necessary is just hugely telling of of where they were coming from and that they really needed somebody with his sort of expertise in how the songs combine with the storytelling. And again, as a, as a book writer, he has so much to add with that, right? He's really thinking of the whole scope of the show, not just, oh, you need a, a song? We'll just put in some catchy lyrics right here and it'll be fun for the kids. Yeah, that's not how he was doing it. Um, one of the other sort of conventions, again, that he was able to bring in was in Beauty and the Beast. And Beauty and the Beast had actually started as um, a, a non-musical movie. It was animated, but non-musical. And he got, I guess, like the first sequence of the movie they sent to him to see what, what he thought. And it was Belle saying goodbye to her dad and then going into town and then coming back. And he and Alan Menken musicalized that whole opening sequence and said, you know, this doesn't need to just be dialogue and her walking along, et cetera. It, this can become like an establishing number in an operetta or an opera where all of the characters are singing and we're getting a sense of the place. And indeed, that's what they wrote. But it, I think it's something like a six minute sequence and Ashman and Macon were terrified to send this to Disney because this hadn't been done. How are you going to open a movie with a six minute sequence? It, it just hadn't been done before. Sorry, I was totally at a loss for words right there. So they sent it. And of course, we know they opted to go with that. And that opening sequence, you get the story of Belle. You get that she's different from everybody else. You see what the town folk are like. It introduces Gaston and LaFou and that Gaston wants uh, Belle, but she's not interested. And then she's at the fountain and she's talking about like that she's yearning to find her true love. So you get so much information all wrapped up into this beautifully packaged, beautiful sounding song. That song, I mean, I can't imagine the movie without it again. And it has become a staple of the musical theater canon. We all love singing all the different characters in it, right? And then there's spoofs of it, like Todrick Hall's Beauty and the Beat, um, that are, is just hilarious as they reinvent it in contemporary world. Um, so he's bringing these ideas of how a, a musical is put together on Broadway and saying, why can't we do this? in this children's movie, why can't we do it the same way? And it works and they start doing that. And then you get this resurgence of Disney's popularity um, throughout the 90s. Okay, I'm popping in to say this because I didn't do it in the initial recording of the podcast. Um, Howard Ashman actually ended up contracting AIDS years before he had even um, begun work on the Disney films. And so he worked on Little Mermaid that came out and he actually told Alan Menken after they got their awards for that, that he was sick. And then over the next several years, he got sicker and sicker. So he worked on Beauty and the Beast while he was in extreme pain um, and just like pretty much wasting away. And he ended up dying in 1991. He saw 
an early release of Beauty and the Beast, uh, and then it was actually fully did the full theatrical release later in 1991 after he had already passed away. And then Aladdin came out after that um, with songs that he had written for the um, written for that movie when he was still alive. All right. So what I want to do next? That's sort of like your little preview to who he was, how he came to be, and some of his work. And now I want to actually dive into some lyrics. What I think of the hallmarks of his lyrics are, and then we're just going to talk through some of the songs. I've got some actual excerpts and you're going to know all of these songs, I'm sure. So what makes, what makes a Howard Ashman lyric, a Howard Ashman lyric, what makes it so special? Well, there's a few things. I think first of all, what he does is he uses imagery beautifully. He uses the everyday, the ordinary items that would be found in the character's world and puts them into the song so that you're really, it's painting the picture through the lyrics and you're seeing very specific images of that character in that place just through the lyrics. Even if they're not in the scene that you're watching, they're referencing their world. And so what it does is it creates this tangible world that they exist in and it just adds more, um, adds more detail and nuance to the entire musical that the nuance and the detail isn't just in the, the scenes in the dialogue. It's not just in what, um, the, the images of the um, actual animation are right. It's in the lyrics as well. It's all fully integrated. So imagery, number one, and I'll give you examples of all these in a minute. Number two, he has ingenious rhymes, but many lyricists have great rhymes. He uses a lot of internal rhyme. So not just the end of each line of a stanza of lyric, but there's actually like dense internal rhymes. And what ends up happening, it's like the lyric becomes so memorable because there's all these little rhymes to sort of hang your hat on that are are um, markers like, oh, this is this part and this is this part and these all go together. So inner rhyme and then rhymes that feature like the natural emphasis of how you would say something. They're not overly fussy, if that makes sense. It's, it's how, it's what you would actually say. And I think in some, in some, um, I'm thinking of like Ira Gershwin, one of the things that he loved to do was to sort of make up words and invert sentences so that you would get the rhyme at the end. He was very playful, um, but they weren't always necessarily just like what you would say in a line of dialogue. And I think that Howard Ashman does that super well. But then he also always has sort of this lighthearted element that we're not taking it too seriously. There's always a little bit of humor brought into his songs as well. So imagery, rhymes that are inner rhyme, and then rhymes that feature the natural emphasis of how you would say it as dialogue, and then lighthearted. Those are sort of the four hallmarks of his style um, that I think. So the first one I want to look at or talk about is Under the Sea. So I'm going to mention, well, I'll read lyrics and then I'll point out these four different items as they happen in the lyric. Okay. So the beginning of the song goes, the seaweed is always greener in somebody else's lake. Okay. So right off the bat, genius, the song's called Under the Sea. We don't know that yet. If you haven't seen the movie yet, right? You're just coming and you get to the song. And the first thing he says is the seaweed is always greener in somebody else's lake. Immediately, we're using ocean imagery with seaweed and then lake, so more water imagery. And then he's putting a new spin on the phrase, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, I think is that phrase. So he's using something that's familiar to the common lexicon, but reinventing it for how little Sebastian would say it. Then he says, you dream about going up there. Sorry, let me say it how it's actually emphasize. You dream about going up there, but that is a big mistake. Now I love that. Okay. So we have lake and mistake. They're rhyming, right? But that it says, um, but that is a big mistake. The fact that big lands so naturally as an emphasis and it drives the point home that Sebastian is going to be talking about for the entire song is like, you're about to make a big mistake. And the lyric emphasizes big 
perfectly with the music as well. You dream about going up there, but that is a big mistake, right? Oh, it's a big one. Okay. Just look at the world around you right here on the ocean floor. Such wonderful things surround you. What more is you looking for? Okay. He's Jamaican. So the grammar is not totally perfect, right? On purpose. It's a a dialect. So we get ocean floor and then basically the point of what he's talking about, look around at what you have. There's so many wonderful things. What more could you be looking for? Then we get under the sea, under the sea, darling, it's better down where it's wetter. Take it from me up on the shore. They work all day out in the sun. They slave away while we devoting full time to floating under the sea. Okay, we get to this first chorus and the title is put right at the beginning two times in a row. Under the sea, under the sea, right? Darling, it's better down where it's wetter. Such a clever rhyme. It's like this understatement. Oh, it's wetter down here. No, actually, you're totally submerged in water. Take it from me up on the shore. They work all day out in the sun. They slave away while we devoting full time to floating. Okay, I love this ingenious rhyme of devoting and floating because the fact that like floating around is this fun thing to do is such a cute way to like help paint the picture of this world of all these under the sea creatures, right? And then they close with under the sea. So that's the first um, sort of stanza and then that first chorus. Let's skip ahead now to um, the part of the song that becomes a list song. And that's the part where we're rhyming the creatures that are under the sea and their instruments. Okay. So one that I love to point out and that I always love singing along with was even the sturgeon and the ray, they get the urge and start to play. So the sturgeon is a fish and the ray is like a manta ray or a bat ray or whatever. And then he rhymes sturgeon with the urge in two words, urge in, start to play. So genius, even the sturgeon and the ray, they get the urge and start to play. Gorgeous. Um, Here's the next part. The newt play the flute, the carp play the harp, the place play the bass, and they sound in sharp. The bass play the brass, the chub play the tub, the fluke is the duke of soul. Yeah, right? So he's continuing to paint very specific underwater creature world with the images of all these different kinds of creatures, right? The newt, the carp, the place, the bass, the chub, the fluke. I've never even heard of a place, but a P-L-A-I-C-E. So that must be some sort of fish that he researched and found that I can rhyme with the word bass, right? But the fact that he's marrying it to the world of music is is another way of developing Sebastian's character because Sebastian's a composer and a conductor, right? So of course he would find a way to be convincing Ariel to stay underwater by using music imagery because his whole world is music. So he's talking about all the fish, right? Ashman's using all the fish imagery to support, like to create this world. And then he's uh, using the music imagery to create Sebastian's character, like we're all just a big orchestra here under the sea. And isn't this so amazing? It's so compact. It's so, um, what's the word economical. They're developing so many things in this compact amount of lyrics. And then there's more verses with more animals doing more, um, instruments and, and dancing and all that kind of stuff. Okay, now let's move on to another show, um, Be Our Guest, another show, another movie. And we're actually going to just start um, right when he first says, I think it's the first sung part of it, Be Our Guest, Be Our Guest. Okay, that's important. He's put the title right at the top of the very first verse of music. You guys, title placement is so important. You want it to be in a memorable spot so that it lands and gives you what the meaning of the song is or what that title is that you want people to be taking home with you. So be our guest, be our guest, put our service to the test, tie your napkin round your neck, Sherry, and we'll provide the rest. Soup du jour, hot hors d'oeuvres, why we only live to serve. Try the gray stuff, it's delicious. Don't believe me, ask the dishes. All right, we get imagery of your napkin, 
soup du jour, hot hors d'oeuvres, gray stuff, that's not super specific, and then he talks about dishes. So that's painting this world of kitchen and food. But what's extra cool is that he's also painting the world of we are in France. So he says, tie your napkin around your neck, chérie. So we get a little tie in there. That's French for sweetie. Soup du jour, hot hors d'oeuvres. Those are both French terms, right? Soup du jour is of the day and hors d'oeuvres are like the food that you eat before all the other food, right? It's your appetizers. So to choose two French food images at the beginning of the song before he goes into all the other stuff, I think is genius because he keeps painting the scene of we're in France and it's the world that they inhabit. And those are the images that you want to see in the animation. And it just makes the setting all that more clear. Okay. But then right after he references these two French dishes, he says, try the gray stuff. It's delicious. And I also love that all of a sudden, it's like, ah, oh, we're going to be super colloquial. I don't even know what that stuff is. It's just the gray stuff. It's delicious, right? So it's that playful, I'm a master at writing lyrics, but then we also just have moments that are fun like that. And then he says, don't believe me? Ask the dishes. So this rhyme, try the gray stuff. It's delicious. It's delicious. Don't believe me? Ask the dishes delicious and the dishes, I think is such a, an ingenious rhyme. Again, you're using one word, delicious, rhyming with two words, the dishes. Okay. So it's when you can combine words to create a rhyme, it, it takes a little bit more effort to make that happen so naturally. And it just rolls off the tongue. You don't even think about it. I also love that he, he's introducing another character like, oh, there's dishes. You, you can ask them questions. They're going to they're gonna come on the scene here also. And they do. Let's skip down a few lines um, and give another example of that natural emphasis of the lyrics where it happens like how you would say it in a sentence. Go on, unfold your menu, take a glance, and then you'll be our guest. We are guest, be our guest. So he says, go on, unfold your menu. Unfold has an accent on fold, right? It's the second of the two syllables. He could have said, go on, open your menu, or go on, open up your menu. But unfold naturally has the emphasis on the second beat, how you would say it. If you were going to sing this, go on, unfold your menu, right? Ba, ba, da, da. There's an emphasis on that fold. If you're going to put open there, go on, open your menu. Open is not how we would say it. So he chose the better word. And then he rhymes menu with then you'll be our guest. Go on, unfold your menu, take a glance and then you'll be our guest. Yeah. We are guests. We is O-U-I. So French free. Yes, again, helping to paint the world of France in here, be our guest, it ends. So he's able to, to put these very taut, tight lines of lyrics that are still chock full of character development, imagery, um, and awesome inner rhymes that, you know, they're just like, they tease the ear. They're fun to listen to, and they're really fun to sing. Um... Let's see. I was going to talk about Mrs. Potts next. And I love this part of the song because she, again, has her own set of imagery. It's still kitchen. It's still dinner, food, all of that. But hers is specifically related to tea. And she is in this film with her British accent. She never tries to be French. And she has specific sort of British things that are in her section of the song. So she says, it's a guest, it's a guest, sakes alive and I'll be blessed. That's very British colloquialism, sakes alive and I'll be blessed. Wine's been poured and thank the Lord I've had the napkins fr freshly pressed. With dessert, she'll want tea, and my dear, that's fine with me. While the cups do their soft shoein', I'll be bubbling, I'll be brewing, I'll get warm, piping hot. Heaven's sakes, is that a spot? And then it goes on after that, but let me talk here. So she has these little things where she interrupts herself. She's doing her business, talking and presenting to Belle, and then also like 
cutting herself off and talking to the dishes. So the wine's been poured, and thank the Lord, little interjection, I've had the napkins freshly pressed. With dessert, she'll want tea. So she's kind of talking more to the dishes here. My dear, that's fine with me. Who's she talking to? My dear, is that to the other dishes? Is that to Chip or is that back to Belle? I'm not quite sure. While the cups do their soft shoeing. Okay, so we've got a little dance reference because this is their entertainment show. I'll be bubbling. I'll be brewing. I'll get warm, piping hot. And this is because she's a teapot, right? So bubbling and brewing and being piping hot are all more imagery words for being the teapot. Okay, so you get how dense and perfect these words are. Let's go on to a totally different subject. Okay, so that was under the sea and be our guest, imagery, character development, um, and the natural emphasis of how the lyrics lay out. I also want to do a little bit of talking about this idea of the I want song. Okay. So I want to analyze a little bit of part of your world, because that's the one that I mentioned before, and somewhere that's green. Okay. So these are both I want songs. For part of your world, it's Ariel from Little Mermaid, and from uh, somewhere that's green is um, Audrey's song from Little Shop. These songs are the same um, dramatic, uh, have the same dramatic purpose. They take our lead character and they show us what they really want in the world. What is, where do you want to be? What's the dream that you have in your heart? Okay. And then each of the songs paints the picture of that place that they want to go. You get a list of the items in that place, the activities that you're going to do there. Um, and I just want to show and, and put these next to each other so you can really see how parallel they are. Okay. So in the intro, let's look at the intro first for somewhere that's green. She says, I know Seymour is the greatest, but I'm dating a semi sadist. So I got a black guy and my arms in a cast. Okay. What do we know? She, the Seymour guy is great, but she's dating someone else. Oh, that guy's terrible. He's a semi-sadist. Semi-sadist. That's hilarious. He's not really a sadist. It's just a little bit, right? And so I got a black eye, my arms in a cast. Here's where she's at currently. This is important. The I Want song starts with where you're at right now. Then she says, still, that Seymour is a cutie. Well, if not, he's got inner beauty. And I dream of a place where we could be together at last. Boom. That's the I want. That's what the rest of the song is about. Dreaming of the place where she and Seymour can be together. Okay. So it, it totally lays out. Here's where I am. That's terrible. This is the dream that I'm going to tell you about. Okay. Part of your world. The intro for part of your world is a little bit longer, but it has the same structure. Look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? Wouldn't you think my collection's complete? Wouldn't you think I'm the girl, the girl who has everything? Okay, so she's like, this is where I am right now. It's You think it looks good, right? Look at this trove, treasures untold. How many wonders can one cavern hold? Looking around here, you'd think, sure, she's got everything. So again, more of, I've got all of these little... Um, trinkets and material things, you think I have everything, but we're going to get something else, right? She's going to tell us something different in a second. I've got gadgets and gizmos aplenty. I've got who's it's and what's it galore. What's it's galore. You want thingamabobs? I've got 20. Okay. Those are very cute, fun, lighthearted little play on words of gadgets and gizmos, who's it's and what's it's thingamabobs. It's awesome because she doesn't know what the things are called, right? She's always going to scuttle and be like, what's the name of this? And he tells her some wrong, wrong thing. And she says, but who cares? No big deal. I want more. Ding, ding, ding. This is her I want song. I don't care about all the stuff that I have, all the things that look like they're great. I want more than this. And then the next part of the song, the body of the song is her painting the picture of what that more is. Yeah. For both of these ladies, Audrey and Ariel, what would their lives look like if they got what they wanted? 
And I say look like on purpose because Ashman is going to use the images of that world to create like this unmistakable visual world in our mind. We know exactly what Audrey wants her life to look like. We know exactly what Ariel wants to experience. Let's go on to the next bit. Audrey in somewhere that's green paints this, this first verse. It's just a list of images, a matchbox of our own, a fence of real chain link. I think the matchbox refers to the house, a grill out on the patio, disposal in the sink, a washer and a dryer and an ironing machine in a tract house that we share somewhere that's green. She's like, all I want is a matchbox, a fence, a grill, a disposal, a patio, a sink, a, all of the, the um, you know, pedestrian everyday things. To us, these don't seem special. These are just the normal things that inhabit a house, right? But to her, these are, this is like the finest palace in the world. It's, it's this quaint, homey little place where she can live that's far away from Skid Row, which is where she currently lives. It's in the city. It's dark. It's a dank. It's gray, right? It's all just cement. She doesn't want to be there anymore. And what's so great about it is that he doesn't say anything about a matchbox would be so wonderful. Uh, the fence is beautiful. He doesn't qualify it with things like beautiful, wonderful, so great, what a dream, right? The way that you understand that this is her dream is the way the melody is written and the way that she delivers the melody. When she says a washer and a dryer, oh my gosh, you guys go listen to any of the cast recordings. It's, um, oh gosh, what's her name? Ellen. Ellen Green? Green. Why can't I remember her name? She sings a washer and a dryer and an ironing machine. I'm doing it sort of sotto voce right now, but she's like belting so big. It's like the biggest moment. And her, the look in her eyes is like, oh my God, a washer. It's everything that a girl could dream of. That's the subtext. But all she's doing is listing a washer, a dryer, and an ironing machine in a tract house, like in one of those neighborhoods where every single house looks the same and it's cookie cutter and nothing is special about it. The heart that she sinks it with, her acting choices and the beautiful melody tell us that this is like the best thing that she could ever imagine in the world. It's so beautiful. Such a beautiful song. Okay. Then we go over to part of your world. Okay. We also get a lot of imagery in part of your world, but it's more action words. Okay. Because it's tied to the fact that Ariel wants to have legs. Okay. And that's part of her, her lot in life is that she's got fins and not legs and to be part of your world, she needs legs to get there. Right. So her wants, I want to be where the people are. I want to see, want to see them dancing, walking around on those, what do you call them? Oh, feet flipping your fins. You don't get too far. Legs are required for jumping, dancing, strolling along down the, what's that word again? Street. I like the little questions. What do you call them? What's that word again? Right? She's not in the world. It's just another way for us to know, like, she doesn't even know what those things are called. She's so in a different world. She's so far removed. It seems so impossible for her to get there. She doesn't even know what the language is. But that's what she that's where she wants to be. She wants to be with the people, dancing, walking, jumping, dancing again, and strolling. Those are those action words of the place she wants to be. And then we get one little image of the place she doesn't want to be. Flipping your fins. You don't get too far. Flipping your fins. Yeah, I'm just flipping my fins. What I want to do is run and jump, jump and dance and stroll down that street. It's a beautiful, specific world that Ashman is painting. We could go on about both of these songs. They have, they could just continue to keep painting a more and more specific world. But I thought what might be interesting is just to mention a couple of other I Want songs from non-Ashman musicals, just so you can kind of get a sense of what some other options might be for you. Um, these are great songs to include in your audition book because the character has such a strong objective to try to achieve during the song, right? 
Okay. Um, Astonishing from Little Women. That is Joe's I Want song. She says, I only know I meant for something more. I've got to know if I can be astonishing. And then she tells us what that imagery or what the excitement of being astonishing would feel like to her. So her whole goal in the play is trying to know if she can be astonishing. Can I be as amazing as I think I can be? Am I as talented as I think I can be? Can I write that book? Can I get it published? And anybody that pulls her away from that, like Lori wanting to marry her, she's like, that's not taking me towards my goal. If I marry you, I'm not going to see how astonishing I can be. And that's one of the things that draws her to Dr. Bear, right? Is that he sees the talent and challenges her and says, no, you can do better than that. Okay. That was more than I wanted to say, but that's Little Women. Um, The Wizard and I, this is Elphaba's I Want song in Wicked. And her telling line is, once I'm with the wizard, my whole life will change. And then the rest of the song is her talking about how great it's going to be when she meets the wizard. I want to be with someone who recognizes my talents. I want to be welcomed. I want to feel at home. I want to not be judged anymore. Those are all the things that um, she starts listing in the song. Okay. And then one more example, some people from Gypsy. Okay. So this is Rose's I Want song. And what's interesting is that it's all set up with some people want this thing, but I want this thing. For some people, this is enough. It's not enough for me. I want this other thing. And her telltale line is she says, I had a dream, a wonderful dream. I had a dream, a wonderful dream, Papa, right? And then she goes on and tells him about that dream, a new act. She wants to get on the Orpheum circuit. She's going to do this and that. She's going to take the kids and they're all going to be off and it's going to be amazing. They're going to be a successful showbiz family, and she's going to feel like a star. That's her I Want song. You guys, I could go on about lyrics all day long, obviously. Howard Ashman lyrics. There's one more show that I was going to talk about, but you know what? In the interest of time, I don't even think we can do it. It's one of my favorite songs, though. I'll just mention it for you guys to listen to. Until Tomorrow Night is the name of the song from Smile, and it's all of the girls in their nervous excitement about tomorrow night, which is like, I think the final night of the pageant or something like that. And it's them all talking about how tense they are. Okay. I can't help it. Let me just read the lyric of this stanza because it's so great. Listen for the inner rhymes and the natural way the lyrics fall with how you would speak it. Well, here it goes. The tension mounts. My cool is draining ounce by ounce because this is the part where it starts to get strange here. I'm so strung out. I'm so done in. I hope this won't affect my skin. Don't think I can deal because I feel a new change here. What do they want from me and how can I be it? Or if I am it, can I get them to see it? I need a sedative. My fingers shake. My brain's a sieve. I've only got so much to give. How will I live until tomorrow night? Isn't that just, it's so chock full of all the nervous tension of what these girls are feeling, right? I'm strung out. I'm done in. Oh God, I hope this won't affect my skin, right? It's like the ping ponging of the thoughts back and forth when you're waiting before the night before something, you're super excited and your mind just won't stop running. That's what this song is. Um, And then at the very end of the stanza, he frames the title until tomorrow night. And I keep mentioning where those titles are placed because I think it's so important that there always is something that a song is pointing back towards, dramatic action. And in this one, it's the idea of until tomorrow night, that's when it's all going to change tomorrow night. What's going to happen? It's that feeling of expectation to go back to um, somewhere that's green and part of your world. In both of those songs, he puts the title several times throughout the, the song, but he also puts it as the very last thing that is sung in that song. So part of your world end, yeah, the I want is framed as the end. She hasn't gotten it yet, but she's on her way. And then somewhere that's green, again, my dream, my want, my objective is pinned right here at the end of the song. So you don't forget 
that's what this show is about and that's where I'm going. Um, interesting, both of those also end on Doe, the home uh, home base of the key, which I think is, they're not flashy big endings with big high notes. It's all coming back to that central home base. This is where I want to be. I want to feel like I'm at home. Okay. That just went to a whole different level. All right. So I don't, I'm not going to talk more about until tomorrow night. Listen to it. It's one of my favorite melodies also. It's so frenetic. Um, I think you'll really enjoy it. Again, that's from Smile. I just watch, listen to it on YouTube is where I find it. I don't even have the recording of that in my own library, but Y'all, I hope that these examples have inspired you to get a Howard Ashman song in your audition book. These songs are classic and they're part of like the best Disney legendary movies. And maybe we've loved them for so long, we've taken them for granted, or we feel like they're overdone and we can't put them in our books anymore. But you can get these songs, put them in your book. They're fun, they're satisfying, and they will bring smiles to the um, auditors behind the audition table. If you're a teacher listening to this, I would definitely recommend these songs to your students. Um, And then there's many more from these shows that I didn't have time to mention today, obviously. So there are songs for women, men, character actors. There's ensemble pieces with sections that you could take a solo out from. I like to do that because not everybody is going to have those audition cuts. But that's it. The other thing I want to say is go watch that documentary on Disney. It's called Howard. And I'm so glad that I just happened to click on it and see that it was about Howard Ashman. I had no idea that it was even on there. So watch that. Let me know what you think. Send me a message. Find me on Instagram at koriyamaoka.com. And then if you find this show helpful or you think someone else would enjoy this particular episode, excuse me, send them a screenshot or just be like, hey, you should check out Studying the Song. This is a great episode about Howard Ashman and I know you love Beauty and the Beast or whatever it is. Anywho, you guys get the idea. Thank you so much for spending your time here. I know there's a million ways you could be spending your time and it means a lot to me that you're tuning in here. I will see you next time right here on Studying the Song, the podcast that helps musical theater singers figure out what to sing and how to sing it so they can shine in the audition room.